Welcome to episode two of season two of A Year in a Day. I'm your host, Jamie Davis. In episode one, I discussed the topic of what happens to the family business during a divorce with my law partner, Nicole Taylor. In this episode, I will be discussing issues related to high-conflict cases with Donna Moore. Donna is a licensed clinical social worker, and she is in private practice in Raleigh. Her practice is focused on all of the emotional aspects of divorce, before, during, and after. Donna is a healthy divorce recovery specialist, and she works with individuals and families on co-parenting counseling, divorce coaching, and blended family issues. Donna is also a parenting coordinator. Welcome, Donna. Thank you. So today, I thought it would be helpful to our listeners to talk about high-conflict cases. There seems to be a misconception that all couples going through a divorce are involved in high-conflict cases, but in my experience, the majority of folks dealing with the issues arising from their separation are able to resolve their issues with little or no court intervention. With that said, however, there are some cases that, despite the lawyers using their best efforts, simply will not settle. The parties are unable to agree upon even the smallest of issues, and court battles ensue. These cases are often referred to as high-conflict cases. So, Donna, what exactly is a high-conflict case? Well, a high-conflict case generally consists of a lot of anger and a lot of distrust. Um, what generally describes it as a high conflict is when they end up in court over and over and over again for excessive litigation. And um, this may involve verbal abuse between the spouses, physical aggression or threats. Uh, There's generally difficulty communicating and the majority of the ones I have seen are... um, revolve around custody issues, and it turns into a custody battle. Are there any particular circumstances that make it more likely that a divorce case will become high conflict? When the parties involved are not able to see the need for negotiating and putting their differences aside in order to come to an agreement. They may feel like they um, are going to have their day in court. Um, They perceive that it's going to be fair and that they are right. And once they are heard that everyone's going to agree with them, and and many times they assume it looks like it it does on television. Generally speaking, there may be personality, mental health issues, personality disorders, um, different cultural expectations, um, and then many times the children are used as pawns in order to move the battle forward into a courtroom. Backing up to something you said just a moment ago, you mentioned cultural expectations. What do you mean by that? Some of the cultural expectations that I have seen are that um, mom is a stay-at-home mom and that she is um, going to 
continue that lifestyle, staying at home, even if the children are growing up and at school more often, um, that she is entitled to the the lifestyle that she was accustomed and that um, she doesn't have to go back to the world of work. Um, many times uh, moms think that they will move out and have their own place and that the children will be with them all the time. That the culture now is moving more towards dads having more shared custody, um, more shared parenting, and that it's no longer every other weekend and dinner on Wednesday nights on the off week. So in your experience, one source of conflict between the parties can be that perhaps a particular person has heard from a friend of a friend of a friend who went through a divorce that, you know, hey, you're going to get primary custody of your kids because you've been a stay-at-home parent, and the other parent's only going to get every other weekend. Correct. And that does is not necessarily so, but if you enter into the negotiations with that expectation and you become rigid in your thinking around that, and that's your expectation, then that can lead to some issues that may um, prevent the person from having flexible thinking, and then um, they end up in the courtroom. That's a really good point. As lawyers, that's one of our primary jobs, in my opinion, is to set realistic expectations for our client mm-hmm. and to help them understand what is a realistic range of outcomes versus, you know, the pie in the sky. This is what I want because I want it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, you also mentioned that mental health issues can play a role in making a case high conflict. Um, typically, what types of mental health issues are we talking about? There's a... A cluster of personality character disorders, and that would include borderline personality, narcissism, histrionic, dependent personality. And these are not illnesses, they're more uh, character disorders. And so when folks, if one or both of the parties involved have the characteristics of having a personality disorder, this puts them at high risk for a high conflict divorce situation. It would require a lot of intervention from mental health folks, their attorneys, um, the court sometimes, in order to get them to seek assistance and and being able to be a reasonable parent. Many times parent coordinators will be um, appointed. And what are some of the traits associated with, let's say, borderline personality disorder that that could impact a custody case, for example? An individual might feel as if they're being abandoned, being abandoned by their spouse, by their children, um, by the system themselves, if they feel like it's not going their way. They could feel like they're losing control of the situation and they will grapple to get it back even if it's in an irrational style. Um, Many times if they feel disrespected or misunderstood, um, they will lash out in, again, ways that you and I may not, may just kind of stand back and go, Oh, that is not getting you anywhere. But to them, it's a defense mechanism to make them feel safe again. Um, 
also if they feel they are not being heard and that they're being ignored or discounted, um, they will make sure that they are getting attention. And this many times will end up in the courtroom in a high conflict situation. In your experience, are there common characteristics associated with high conflict personalities? Yes. Uh, rather than label people outside of the mental health field, it may be easier to just kind of put them together in a cluster and consider them high conflict folks. And some of the characteristics are um, the lifetime preoccupation of blaming other people for their woes and their troubles and avoiding taking responsibility. There's a real rigid all or nothing thinking like it's all right or all wrong or it's all me. You're either for me or you're against me. Um, always seeking attention and sympathy. They may, um, they're looking for allies in, in the divorce process. They're looking for family members, friends, coworkers, neighbors. Um, you've the, the depositions of the school nurse and anybody that will agree with them and back them up on their point of view. Speak in dramatic, emotional extremes. It's all or nothing type thinking and language. Language is real important. Focusing intently on other people's past behaviors, keeping score to the smallest detail um, and always bringing it up and, and making it a point that they're watching, punishing those guilty of hurting them, making sure their life is miserable in ways that um, can be quite creative at times, trying to get others to solve their problems, and, and that's where they come into the court system, uh, utilizing the, the judges, attorneys, to, to get them to solve their problems for them. And rather than to be responsible and to work on um, negotiating and mediating their own their own issues, um, and many times they will lie if they think it is going to support their cause. So, in your experience, how can these, I guess, traits or characteristics of high conflict personalities impact? the divorce process itself? It comes back, I think, to their expectations that in doing this, they're going to get something for it, that there's a reason the, the court will hold somebody else responsible for their behavior, that guilty or not guilty are usually the only choices, especially for the all or nothing thinking, and that's going to be discovered in court. And so I guess, too, that could be a real impediment to settlement that if it's all or nothing, mm -hmm. you know, there, there yes. can be no middle ground, no gray area right. where, right. you know, you and I might be able to agree on something. Right. It's it's reworking over and over again, that movie, The War of the Roses. Yes. That going down for the cause and the cause is, is their thinking and, and their way of looking at things. Um, that... The view is that courts are where our society imposes punishment and that they want to see punishment done, trying to get the court to solve their problems, um, and many times bringing new, numerous advocates into the courtroom 
and do, doing it that way. And when you say bringing numerous advocates into the courtroom, what do you mean by that? Um, in, in when I was talking about a moment ago with the uh, aggressively seeking allies, mm-hmm. people to back up their story, bringing in neighbors, um, people from their childhood to say that they're a good person and they would never do this. Um, so really any witness that they could possibly mm-hmm. find to support them. <laughs> yes. And if you'd like to find out more information about high-conflict personalities in legal disputes, in the courtroom, in divorce, even in the workplace, um, I would refer folks to Bill Eddy. He is a licensed clinical social worker who is also an attorney and is um, a mediator and is nationally well-known for his work in high-conflict divorce situations. If a person finds himself involved in a high-conflict case, is there anything he can do to help mitigate the conflict? Yes, there there are a couple things. First, to try to focus on the behavior of the other person and not the person. To try to focus on their own behavior and not on themselves. To try to externalize it a bit in order to not take this personal. Because the attacks can be quite um, just wounding. And and this is a difficult situation full of stress and tension already. Um, Being very careful about their language. To not use inflammatory language. Um, Also... I think it's important for people to understand that it's a good idea to look not only at language, but their conflict management skills. That when you're ending a relationship and a marriage, you are bringing with you your conflict management skills with you into the divorce process. And many times they just did not work in the marriage. So they may not serve you well in the divorce process. And there's so many... Um, resources online for that to just learn some new management skill, conflict management skills, and to treat it more in a business-like fashion. To be able to step back and take their emotion out of the process. Not that they're not to feel emotion, but during the divorce negotiations and proceedings, to try to make it as business-like as possible and use those skills. It will serve them well. I like to hear you say that because that's something (laughs) that I often say to my clients as we're trying to navigate a highly emotional issue, you know, usually revolving around child custody, but not always, you know, sometimes folks get very attached to some of their things and just reminding them that at the end of the day, it it really and truly is a business decision and should be, um, often helps them, you know, reach a settlement with their spouse. Right. Right. And it's also very helpful in co-parenting also to try to develop a business relationship with uh, the mission statement to be on um, parenting well together but separately for the best interest of their children. Yeah, I usually tell my folks too, you know, don't engage the other party. They want to draw you into the, the fray and the disagreement about whatever the thing is, you know, stay above board, address whatever the issue at hand is, but just don't get down there in the mud and sling the dirt with them. I agree. Do you think it's helpful for one party to point out to the other party that 
he or she thinks the other party has a personality disorder? Absolutely not a good idea because it will only lend to inflaming the situation. Um, we're going once again. We're going to look at behavior and not the person. Um, and you do not want to point out to them that their behavior may indicate a personality disorder or a character disorder either. That's not going to help anybody to point that out to them because they're never going to admit it anyway, right? <laughs> right. Do you have any recommendations for how a party should interact with the other party in a situation like this? Um, many times, as you said, to not engage directly because that can inflame and, the, and, and you take the hook. Once you take the hook and you get sucked in, then you lose your own credibility and your own footing. So to try to not get sucked into the situation, uh, to try to take the high road, um, I use this phrase loosely, kill him with kindness. <laughs> and, um, once again, it's about learning some new conflict management skills, some basic ones, maybe from the workplace, and trying to not use inflammatory communication. And also, is it, do you want to be right? Is it about being right, or is it about getting the best negotiation that you can? That's a really good point. Do you think these tips hold true if the parties are parents and have to interact fairly regularly with respect to their children? It can make it more difficult because the thing about divorce is it's an ending of of a, a dream. It's an ending of the family as we know it. It's the ending of a marriage and People without children are able to go their separate ways and many times not interact. But when you do have children, you have a lifetime ahead of you of graduations and recitals and sports events and weddings and funerals and grandbabies and everything else. So in order to interact on a fairly regular basis, it's a good idea to develop some guidelines that work best for you and then the two of you to develop guidelines for um, co-parenting. But when a high-conflict personality situation is involved on either side, as you mentioned before, to kind of step back and not engage them sometimes directly, but to utilize uh, technology is very helpful in a situation like this, such as texting or email um, rather than in-person conversations, because you're sitting close to each other at a basketball game does not mean you need to be talking to each other. That's a very good point. <laughs> <laughs> um, and to also sort of have a guideline such as if, if you receive a text, if it's not an emergency, if it doesn't need to be handled right at that moment, to save it and to give yourself some space. Take a deep breath. Or write a text or an email and maybe not send it. Go take a walk, get some fresh air, come back and reread it and see whether or not it um, is is neutral. You want to be as neutral as possible in your communications. Because this high conflict affects the children, right? Oh, definitely. They are the um, 
that's where the carnage comes up is the research has been pretty clear. There was a longitudinal uh, research study that came out five, six years ago that children are very resilient to the changes in their families when they have a divorce. What creates harm emotionally for children, it creates um, in the moment, it creates anxiety and difficulty in coping with day-to-day life, but it also long-term affects their relationships as they go through school, when they um, become young adults and they start to develop relationships for lifetime situations. Um, What is harmful for the kids is after they understand that there's going to be a separation or divorce, they understand that their parents are not able to live together anymore and that the family is going to change. This takes some time. This takes a lot of support, but they're able to do that. They're able to adjust to the family changes and um, going back and forth with shared parenting. What they have the most trouble with, and the research shows, is that when parents have ongoing conflict, high conflict, and the children are aware of it, that's confusing for them, emotionally damaging for them. It's why why did you separate and why are you getting a divorce if this is still going on? Um, so that's where parents want to be careful. And if they're not careful and if they continue to engage in this pattern of high conflict with one another, eventually how will that impact the children? It will impact, um, depending on their developmental stage and their ages, it'll affect them differently, but it can create a lot of anxiety. It can create acting out behaviors and, and for a, a five, six, seven-year-old that could be hitting, be aggressive to other children in school uh, with playmates and peers or siblings. Um, With teenagers, it could be trying substances, um, acting out sexually, withdrawing. Be on the lookout for all children in terms of school performance and um, sleep. Sleep is a, a big indicator too. So given the impact that a high level of conflict can have on the children, it seems to be very important that the parties get a handle on this issue early on and figure out a way to, to mitigate it. Is that right? Yes. That That is the logical approach. However, being rational and understanding is not necessarily it's uh, counterintuitive to having high personality uh, traits and characteristics. And so that is where the um, attorneys and the court may want to step in and look at the possibility of having uh, co-parenting, training, counseling, Uh, put in place, and if that is not successful, or in addition to appointing a parenting coordinator. And you are a parenting coordinator, Mm -hmm. is that right? I am. What exactly is a parenting coordinator? 
parenting coordinator is a, a quasi-official of the court that is appointed by the judge, giving a list of um, items that they can assist the parents in making decisions in their parenting. So you have an outside party who is either an attorney or a mental health person who is trained to be a parenting coordinator. You have an outside person being appointed by the court to help you make these decisions. Um, the overreaching goal of a parenting coordinator is to assist in reducing conflict and tension between the parties. However, if you have folks that are um, perpetuating anger and uh, distrust and rigid, unflexible thinking, then many times a parent coordinator will need to step in and make the decision for you. So it's also about losing control of your parenting role. And so I, I try to explain to clients what this will look like and how they really don't want to go in that direction unless they have to. It's a very useful tool for the kids because it's all about helping the children navigate high conflict. So if you're in court and you have a parent coordinator, you are a high conflict divorce situation. Absolutely. And I am also a parent coordinator. Yes. And one of the things that I try to do in my work as a PC is to always err on the side of peace for the children. And and that is the, that's the main goal. You yes. know, mom may want one thing. The other parent may want something different. You know, as the parent coordinator, I might not think either one of those is a good option and I might get to make that decision for them. Um, and so I do agree with you that high conflict folks are necessarily ceding some of their parenting control yes. because the court is appointing a coordinator to help them. Mm -hmm. And when you think back on some of the characteristics and how it affects court that I, uh, how it shows up in the courtroom that I mentioned earlier, um, one of the parents is more than likely thinking, Oh, well, we need a parent coordinator because then they'll understand what I've been through. They'll see how difficult this is, and they're going to help me get what I need for my kids because I'm the uh, victim, I'm the offended one, and, and I'm right. And that's not necessarily so. Right. And the, it can be very surprising for the parties involved when the parenting coordinator gets in there. And you have somebody making decisions on on, if necessary, uh, what bus stop is being used, how often medication is, is given, and how you record it, uh, dietary needs, what church they go to, what school they go to, and um, you, you really want to make the most concerted effort you can to try to negotiate things on your own before you get to that point. And for any of our listeners who would like more information about parenting coordinators, you can check out episode five of season one, where I mm. discuss the topic of parenting coordinators in depth with fellow parenting coordinator, Katie King. Donna, in your work as a parenting coordinator, what do you see as the most common cause of the conflict? If there is one. Mm. 
well, I think there's a handful of, of areas that um, parents overshare with their children. Many times it's not a parent-child role, it's a parent-friend role. And they overshare adult divorce issues and, and shared parenting and custody issues, which is really harmful for a child. They need to be children as long as they can. Um, allowing the children to have too much leeway and say-so in what the shared parenting looks like. Um, telling them that if if they don't enjoy their time at the other parent's house and, and if, if that's not working for them, then just let them know because they'll come in and talk to their attorney and to the judge and let them know that we need to make a change here. And first of all, that's detrimental to a child to give them that much control and power and they can learn to manipulate situations with that. And second of all, that's not necessarily how it's going to work um, because that is not necessarily the way the court and the attorneys will see it. Um, children will have two different households, and it will. it's always nice when you can have things as similar in each house, but there will be differences, and they need to adjust to that. So parents need to support them rather than say, oh, yeah, you can just stay with me all the time. Um, putting adult responsibilities on the children, such as carrying back and forth um, child support checks, messages, uh, tell your father or tell your mother or tell your brother when you see him next time that um, cousin Joey has a birthday party the 15th of March and he's to bring cupcakes. And it, that just puts the child in the role of messenger and negotiator and is not a good idea. Also, children can start to manipulate the situation and then they can start to refuse to visit. And then that just opens up a whole nother situation that's um, harmful for kids to have that kind of power. We've talked a lot about how the parties can learn to deal with one another if they find themselves in a high conflict case. You know, a parent coordinator could be appointed, things like that. Do you have any recommendations for the professionals who may be involved in a high conflict case? I'm talking about the lawyers, the therapists, the accountants who may be involved in, in representing these folks in one way or another. So professionals, attorneys, accountants, therapists, can all utilize some of the uh, points that I mentioned before for spouses to use, exes to use also. It's about focusing on the behavior and not the person, um, trying to keep it as neutral as possible, as factual as possible, also trying to decide when to respond and when not to respond. Is, is Does this have a goal and is is responding going to get me there? Um, a great reference for that is, uh, again, Bill Eddy, who has a book called Biff, Brief, Informative, Friendly, Firm. And 
he gives great examples and also shows you how to do step-by-step on responding to um, an inflammatory emails, texts, phone conversations from high-conflict persons um, because you don't want to take the hook. You just don't want to find yourself in the middle of it because you can't get out of it. It just becomes a circular conversation of um, high emotion. So for professionals to set boundaries and be clear on your boundaries, this is what I can do for you. This is what my role is. This is not okay. You've stepped over that boundary and to keep those boundaries firm, um, to listen to your instincts. If you get that funny feeling in your gut that this, this doesn't make sense or this is crazy making then it usually is. And that's where that's coming from. So setting boundaries is real important too because you are the best and you're the most wonderful until they're feeling disrespected, abandoned, ignored, and then you are the worst and the wrath begins. So it's not just the ex-spouse that will be the uh, receiver of these personality uh, disorders. Well, Donna, thank you for joining me today. If any of our listeners would like to contact you, what is the best way for them to reach you? Oh, uh, they can email me, Donna at DonnaMoreTherapy.com, or you can call me, 919-787-5897. And thank you, Jamie, for having me today. It's my pleasure to be here. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of A Year in a Day. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at jdavis at divorcestuff.com. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a review on iTunes. As a reminder, while in my role as a lawyer, my job is to give folks legal advice. The purpose of this podcast is not to do that. This podcast is for general informational purposes only, should not be used as legal advice, and is specific to the law in North Carolina. If you have questions before you take any action, you should consult with the lawyer who is licensed in your state.